so here we are <laughs> coming to the end of um, a relatively long uh, period of intensive practice here at uh, Vaisitos and soon to be uh, taking yourself uh, taking your practice uh, out there wherever there is for each of you taking your practice out there for a long period of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go wherever you are that that's your there's your practice right there I think that many of us come to the end of a retreat with some thoughts, some feelings that are actually not dissimilar to those that we come into retreat with. For many people there's a feeling of excitement uh, and a real feeling of readiness to go into an extended period of practice. But sometimes just before one's ready to enter in, there's also often uh, a feeling that, well, I'm not really quite finished out here with what I have to do. I just need a few more days or I need a, another week uh, so that I can do all the things that need to be done so that I'll be really ready to go in to practice, go into retreat. And I think that some of these same thoughts uh, occur for many people when it's time to come out of retreat. Just a little more time, maybe another couple of days, oh, another week, another month would re really be terrific so that I can do what needs to be done. And then I'll be finished, and then I'll really be ready to go out of retreat go home and sometimes on either end the um, the going into and the coming out of retreat there may be sometimes some degree of reluctance maybe some fear some kind of fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known maybe just essentially fear of change <clears throat> fear of ending one way and then entering into another way so you might check in with yourself and see if there might be some of these thoughts some of these mind states some of these similar conditioned patterns that within your own mind within your own heart that are coming up now at the end of the retreat similar mental states that you may have experienced when you were preparing to come here and maybe at the onset of the retreat a number of years ago when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society as the resident teacher for the staff 
in Barry, Massachusetts. I was talking to uh, a friend the evening before he was uh, to enter into what I think was his fourth or fifth three-month retreat. And I asked him how he was feeling. And I think if I had asked him the same question at the end of the retreat, at the end of the retreat, his answer probably would have been similar. He said to me, oh, I'm feeling the obligatory fear. And of course, we're not at all obliged to feel anxiety in any way, in any direction, either direction. There's, of course, the possibility that one might feel a very clean, very fresh, very open readiness and a happiness, actually, to go on without any expectations or any worries regarding moving on to the next thing, the next phase, the next form that life will take. There's a beautiful piece that was written um, by the American astronaut Russell, Russell Swickert, and it's about his experience um, when he uh, was in outer space and his considerations about returning back uh, to the planet. And I'd like to share this with you. These are his words, Russell Swickert. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with the window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know that the answer to this is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for man, for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you. They are you, and somehow you represent them. You're up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you are out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront, and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. 
there's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience it's a difference and it's so precious Uh, and of course it is a change a change out of retreat life into the larger world one change being of course the pace of life at least outwardly life moves a lot faster outside of retreat and yet we're really supported as we move into a larger world with a deeper understanding through our weeks of practice on how quickly and incessantly things change within our own body and mind how quickly and incessantly things change all around us even in the slow pace of life in retreat this understanding this wisdom is really a great support and a great protection as we make this change from practice and retreat practice life to practice in the world reconnecting with the larger world in, a, in the day-to-dayness of it in the moment-to-momentness of it in the incessant and often very fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives and we've tasted the impersonality of change we've tasted that we can't stop change we can't hold on to anything really and we've tasted how painful it is to try to hold on we've had a glimpse that all of the changing phenomena in our body and our mind and our heart isn't me it's not anything that we can keep not anything that we can call mine it's not who i am we've had a taste that what we experience in any given moment happens comes together because of myriad causes and conditions in truth really an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment and then it changes it changes very quickly or it just simply disappears these tastes this understanding has a very deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world there's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals our deepest aspirations and what we choose to do or not do there's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make more connection and more clarity 
in our relationships to others. And more clarity in relationship to what's important, what's appropriate, what's wholesome, and what's truly respectable and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in our retreat life, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is a change, another change from here to out there. Life in retreat offers us very little distraction. We sit, we walk, we eat, we sleep. We sit, we walk, we eat, we sleep, on and on. We talk a little bit each day in our practice interviews. And within this container of simplicity, we're supported to mindfully pay attention to whatever occurs in the body and in the mind. And then come to see, to know, is the mind, the heart, connecting to what is? Or is it disconnected, separated? We come to know, we come to see what brings suffering, what brings ease. And we learn to really care and respect all of these cycles within our mind, within our body. So this seeing also is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. We're really, all of us, so similar. No matter who we are, no matter where we live, our culture, our age, our color, we're really all just variations on themes. I certainly hear that when I listen to everybody in interviews. We're all really just variations on themes. And we're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into our being, into being and to being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart, in our mind. As we come to know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, 
how we use language and it affects our actions seeing into our own mind affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out into the world and this is a quote from the Buddha the thought manifests as the word the word manifests as the deed the deed develops into habit and habit hardens into character so watch the thought and its ways and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings the possibility of engaging in the refuges and the precepts as part of our daily practice at home is a possibility maybe beginning our day chanting them to ourselves each day this can really be quite a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts our words and our actions there's a particular rendition of the precepts that uh, was written uh, not a while ago but not too long ago by a woman named Stephanie Kaza she used to live at the Green Gulch uh, Zen in the Green Gulch Zen community I don't think she lives there anymore but I think it's a particularly relevant um, way of expressing the precepts in relationship to daily life so I'd like to share it with you knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow not to kill knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow to not take what is not given knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow to not engage in abusive relationships knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow to not dwell on past errors knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow to not speak of self separate from others knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow to not possess any thing or form of life selfishly knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant animal or human being knowing how deeply our lives intertwine we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures the Buddha the Dhamma and the Sangha and again for me as I'm sure for many of you 
over my own years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting I've been inspired and have been motivated in my own life to live my daily life in ways that serve and support this process of awakening more and more and more and it's been interesting to see how this happens over the years sometimes letting go of a particular habit or habits of distraction have been done with a very conscious intention and as our practice deepens there's more and more of a letting go uh, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally we relinquish more and more easily and naturally the habits the distractions of our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to and it's very often around quite ordinary very mundane aspects of our life so a personal example very mundane personal example there was a time when i would get into my car and i would automatically turn on the radio some of you may know that habit at some point i began to notice uh, notice it as a distraction and so i decided not to turn it on all the time i begin driving somewhere and my hand would kind of automatically move towards the on knob of the radio the force of habit is very very strong so i'd mindfully withdraw bring my hand back and at some point i began noticing the thought to turn on the radio and then right then choice was available to or not to and you could apply this or i could apply this we could all apply this to many different habits in our life so looking at another change in this very simple quiet space of retreat there may have been some what we could call big days some big events for you and especially big day for us in retreat might have been something as mundane as laundry day for me uh, there was a time when uh, i when i was in retreat many years ago when laundry day was such a huge addition uh, to my day that i would plan it i would plan it beforehand i'd go to bed at night and i'd plan the laundry day the next day and the first thing i would think about when i woke up that morning was laundry day <laughs> either i had to put out or pick up my laundry and it was really a big day maybe lunch 
each day is in a big event for you or at least some days it's become a bear it was a big event maybe going to a practice interview on some days was a big a big event that day maybe today our work day was a very big day for some of you this is a, a poem by um, Nanao Sakaki who's now I think about 84 years old he, he's, uh, he's not wandering very much anymore he's not so well right now but he was for many 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 years uh, a Japanese uh, wandering Buddhist poet and this is his poem called A Big Day getting water at the spring carrying firewood chattering with the neighbor the sun goes down a big day and just a little bit of a story about Nanao he used to spend uh, quite a lot of time at the Lama Foundation which is, uh, as some of you may know, is just north of Taos in fact, Beth, our cook, used to live at the Lama Foundation. He'd show up at uh, Lama with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag, and he'd stay for a few days, and they were always very, very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains <clears throat> with just this, this knapsack, small knapsack, and a sleeping bag. And sometimes he'd be gone uh, for a few weeks and then he'd come back again uh, to Lama. A very uh, dear friend of mine um, who many years ago when Nanao was doing this was the um, coordinator at uh, the Lama Foundation and she told me a story about him that um, one of the times when he uh, uh, was there and he'd come in for a few days from his out in the mountain stays, stay and he asked her and another friend, another uh, person who was living at Lama, if they would like to come to his camp uh, for dinner in a few days. And they were delighted because no invitation had ever come to anyone there to come and meet him out in the mountains for dinner. So they set up the day and the time. And on that appointed day and time, my friend and uh, this other uh, person uh, found their way to Nanao's a camp, camping place, from the very clear directions that he'd given them. And um, when they got there, Nanao was there, but uh, there wasn't any food ready or any food in sight. So they thought maybe they'd come out on the wrong day. And uh, he said, oh no, no, he was delighted to see them. He said, uh, he, said uh, he had told them not to bring anything. And, and that it wouldn't be necessary and that there would be plenty of food. So Nanao said when they got there, after he greeted them with a lot of joy, he said, well, okay, now let's go out and find dinner. Yeah. Yeah. So my friend said they walked and walked through different, all around the mountains there and, and picked and dug various wild foods and then came back and built a fire and uh, cooked what needed cooking and had an incredibly delicious dinner. 
She said that they finally understood um, how Nanao could go out into the mountains for weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back very strong, very healthy, and very happy. Once, uh, a number of years ago, someone in an interview spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat, having a good taste. We taste it, this good taste, and we take it, take it with us. It wends its way into our life um, in many small and sometimes in big ways. And of course, life outside of retreat can be uh, quite complex at times. Our family life, our jobs, home life. There are ways that we can let go, actually, of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do, in the ways that we spend our time with partners, with family, with friends. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really truly have the possibility of simplifying at least to some degree, really every aspect of our life. Expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course there are uh, some very complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with in our larger life. The taste of simplicity has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards how we use our energy, even in the midst of very complex activity, very complex relationships. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we use our energy, the ways that we engage our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, as we naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting more skillful with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. 
And so we find then that we have actually have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and out there. A great support and a great protection everywhere, actually, along this step-by-step journey that we're engaged in. Considering our whole life as our practice, How can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a very most important and most essential question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a mindful awareness into all the dimensions of our being making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, all of it part of our practice. All of the conditions, all of the relationships in our lives are really wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys, and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the likes and the dislikes. All that we experience in life, in retreat, and in life outside of retreat, all of it the mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel a number of years ago and who long before I met her lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff told me a story that's really quite an amazing mirror of a particular and a very difficult life situation of it being really Uh, the perfect practice, she said. She said that in this community in France, there was an old man who was a very um, irascible fellow. He was very messy. He was argumentative. He didn't cooperate. He wouldn't help with things. And he basically didn't get along with anybody in the community. Nobody liked him. And uh, he pretty much didn't like anybody either. He tried to stay there uh, for a long time. He tried to stay in the community, but it was very difficult for him, as, of course, uh, as it was for others. So difficult that he finally decided to leave because he just couldn't stand it anymore. And so he went to Paris. 
Gurdjieff uh, actually followed him to Paris and tried to convince him to return to the community. But the man said he just couldn't do it. It was too difficult. So he refused. Gurdjieff finally begged him, begged him, and the man said no. And so Gurdjieff finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back to the community. And the man was very poor, so he couldn't refuse. And he returned. When he returned, everyone in the community was uh, aghast. They were really uh, unhappy (laughs) and surprised. And they were even more aghast when they found out that uh, Gurdjieff had paid him to come back. (laughs) And they complained a lot. So Gurdjieff called a meeting and he listened to everybody's complaints and then he just laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, and compassion. That's why you pay me, and I pay him. (laughs) The conditions of our lives, the people in our lives, are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread. They're yeast for our liberation. Yeast for our awakening. As you probably uh, remember, uh, there was a a teaching. It's one of amongst the 84,000 teachings that the Buddha is said to have offered. And Sayadaw spoke about this one particular teaching a few nights ago. Uh, The metaphor of a mother who has four sons uh, and uh, the metaphor is these four sons are uh, it's about the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings the four divine abodes metta loving kindness karuna compassion mudita appreciative joy and upeka equanimity and each of the sons because of his particular age particular personality particular uh, a karmic manifestations calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings I have only three sons but they have managed really to be some of my strongest teachers in many many ways over the years our closest people can often be some of our best teachers just simply through them being who they are what they need and what they give to us what they show us for example my two oldest sons who are uh, 43 now they're identical twins and they continue to show me they continue to teach me about a relationship that's really uh, quite rare they're each other's best friends and although when they were small boys uh, they would fight with each other of course as children do 
But over all these years, these 43 years, well, they didn't talk for a little while, but so less than 43 years, but over all these years, they've never uh, talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. They, they never really, uh, never uh, uh, put each other down. No matter what the other one was feeling or, or doing, what one had done or not done, how the other's life is going, and they're also not each other's keeper. They really have never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. And I think this is really quite a rare relationship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it, actually. And I always learn from it. So that's one way that they're my teachers. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has a potential to reveal the truth to us. And this is a quote that's been attributed to the Tibetan teacher Namkai Norbu. I looked to see if I could find it somewhere else, but I think it actually comes from the Buddha, but I could only find it uh, from Namkai Norbu. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere, like a deer, and like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn moves along this noble sacred path is of course mindfulness and concentration and it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of our mind the concentration aspect of mind a change in how it is in a long retreat or how it develops and sustains in a long retreat such as this there's a change in it when we reconnect to the larger world and it's true that there's also some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness from how it is develops and sustains in a long retreat like this and then what happens when we connect or reconnect to a larger world there's a change but we don't lose it mindfulness and concentration are always always available to us many years ago at the end of a two-month retreat with Saida Upandita and uh, two other Burmese monks I had a brief conversation with one of the monks and I asked him if he had any advice uh, that he might give me around taking my practice into the world, into the whole of my life. 
And his response was this. He said, you need to eat and stay alive. You need, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. And you need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. So I thought that was really good advice. In terms of integrating mindfulness more and more into our daily life, there's some, just a few particular ways that I'd uh, like to share with you that I've found and that others have found and ways that you already may know. One teacher I know suggests that at the end of every hour of every day that you should take one or two minutes to just stop. Just stop, be still, and be mindful. So however long your waking day might be, that would be anywhere from maybe 15 to 30 minutes or more of a very directly focused, mindful moments. And of course, each of these moments have an effect on the moments that follow. Now this, of course, is besides the daily sitting practice. Another way to carry our practice into our daily life is to remember to touch into the physical sensations through contact. Very simple. Mindfulness and concentration is immediately connected with and strengthened every single time we do this. And I think the only hard thing about doing it is to remember to do it. I know uh, of some people uh, who put little notes to themselves around their house, uh, little sticky notes, uh, or around their workplace to remind themselves to check in. And when I was uh, the resident teacher for the staff at IMS, there was a fellow who worked in the front office uh, at, at IMS, and he, uh, on his desk he had a little stand-up sticky note that said buttocks, <laughs> which was to remind him, every time he saw that note, to remind him to notice the touch points on his bottom connecting with the chair. And walking meditation. Walking meditation can be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. Most of us walk at least a few miles just going from here to there, from place to place, through a day, through a week. And we can make some of this walking a time of practice, very consciously making it a time of practice. Again, when I lived at the meditation center in Massachusetts um, as a teacher for staff, and because I did so many interviews and had so many meetings each week, I didn't have time to do walking meditation. So I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs, my, my living space and my 
uh, my workroom were both on the second floor. So I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs, that would be my walking meditation time. And I, I did this most of the time then after I made that decision. At one point, um, a staff member uh, came in for his uh, interview, his practice interview, and he was very obviously quite agitated. And with a fair amount of difficulty, he told me that he was very upset because I was ignoring him. He said that he felt abandoned by me. He said that um, whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. (laughs) And he wondered if I was mad at him. And I told him that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time. And that I certainly hadn't abandoned him and I certainly wasn't angry with him. It was just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. And of course this totally changed his attitude. He was uh, very happy for me and he told me that he thought it was a great idea. People may not always understand what you're doing when you integrate your practice (laughs) into your life in small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And one uh, last uh, thing in this, in this, this, uh, this vein. It's really uh, very helpful to connect with others who practice, as I know many of you already know that. And we certainly can uh, see the benefits, feel the benefits in a retreat setting of connecting with others. If you're not connected at least sometimes with a group of other practitioners, even just a group of one or two or three, to sit with once in a while. Check and see if there might be a sitting group in your area. And if there isn't, start one. Which might mean just asking another one or two or three people that you know who meditate to just come and sit with you once a week or every other week. You can sit together, you can maybe listen to uh, a Dhamma talk tape, or maybe read something out loud, taking turns sharing uh, what will be read, and then having a Dhamma discussion afterwards. Or maybe you might pick a theme that you'll uh, pay attention to in your daily life and maybe also read, study about, uh, that you'll keep for a week or two or more. It might be Anicca or one of the uh, aspects of Sila. Maybe metta or equanimity or there's, you know, infinite possibilities that way. The Buddha, in a very now famous conversation with Ananda, spoke about the importance of the connection, of connecting with spiritual friends. And this is the conversation Ananda said to the Buddha, Half of this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda by saying, Do not say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, 
companionship and association with the good. So use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment, as much as possible, be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the greatest arts in life. Maybe perhaps the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere. When we have the uh, when we have the intention to live awake. If we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable actually that joy increases, that peace increases, and that wisdom increases. If we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that our capacity or our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. So I'd like to um, <clears throat> close the talk with a, another a little poem by Nanao Sakaki. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. <laughs> So, um, <laughs> with that, <laughs> <laughs>